Welcome to the Vincentian Heritage Podcast, a selection of readings on Vincentian history, spirituality, and praxis to help sustain the members of the Vincentian family in our shared efforts to live out the mission, vision, and values of St. Vincent de Paul. This week's reading is entitled, The Woman Elizabeth Ann Seton, 1804-1812, published in Vincentian Heritage Journal in 1993. It is read by David Edward Sims. To open exploration of Elizabeth Ann Seton, the woman, Sister Marilyn Thee began at the wide end of the hourglass with the common experience of women in Elizabeth's day. I move to the center of the hourglass and begin with Elizabeth herself. The movement flows from her experience of widowhood and an aspect of her experience of mothering, and so leads out toward the broader experience of many women. The focus is on the years 1804 to 1812. These are the years in which Elizabeth converted to Roman Catholicism, made her way in New York City as the widowed mother of five children, moved to Baltimore, and founded a religious community. Unfortunately, the outlines of the individual, Elizabeth Ann Bailey Seton, have already been blurred by the hagiography associated with Mother Seton, Saint and Foundress. To bring Elizabeth the woman into sharper relief, I examine two key relationships, the one with her beloved Antonio Filiki and the one with her cherished daughter, Anina. Sooner or later, everyone must deal with the consequences of her own loves, and Elizabeth Ann Seton, with her warmly affectionate nature, had perhaps more occasion than most to experience such consequences. 1. Time of Mourning, Time of Conversion January 1804 to April 1807. Elizabeth's husband, William, died in Pisa on 27 December 1803, after a marriage of almost ten years. In the three years immediately preceding this period, Elizabeth lost her position in society. In the three months immediately preceding this period, having temporarily left her country, most of her family, and her religious support system, she lost her husband. The problem she was faced with was the reconstellation of identity. She will find her new identity in religious conversion. It is therefore most significant that the time of mourning and the time of conversion coincide. The steps of the process of reconstellation are these. 1. Initial grief, the raw experience, into which is inserted Antonio's presence. 2. Devastation, desolation. 3. Interior shift, opening to reconstellation of identity. 4. Consolidation, access to the events in which this process can be traced as Elizabeth works out her new identity, is through her writings, the key ones being her correspondence with Antonio Filiki. One person dominates Elizabeth's account of the months in Italy following William Seton's death, Antonio Filiki. Antonio, the younger of the two Filiki brothers and husband of Amabilia, traveled back to America with the widowed Elizabeth, played a key role in her conversion, and remained a significant presence to the end of Elizabeth's life. It was he who first taught her to make the sign of the cross, and their sometimes tender, occasionally passionate, never genital, always affectionate relationship affords lively entree to Elizabeth, the woman. Initial Grief the first letter Antonio sent her, soon after her husband's death, is prophetic. 
He wrote, Your dear William was the early friend of my youth. You are now come in his room. Your soul is even dearer to Antonio and will be so forever. He continues, as she will later remind him, I shall call for you. I must meet you in paradise. By April 1804, he is rereading all over ten times a note of hers and responding to it. For the purpose of obtaining one of your letters in the week, I would cheerfully scribble all the 24 hours of the day, but till I shall have the blessing of enjoying your personal company, having the reality, I shall not care much about the shadow. Without question, he was attracted to her. Devastation, Desolation Their journey to America was a voyage of almost seven weeks, 20 April to 4 June 1804. Because of her still recent bereavement, Elizabeth would have been both vulnerable to and needy of human affection. The only likely indication of the unfolding relationship during this period is in a passage from the Italian journal kept for Rebecca Seaton. It is extensive and deserves to be quoted in full. When a soul whose only hope is in God, whose concern and desires are so limited that it would forsake all human beings and account the dearest ties of life as foolishness compared with his love, when this soul, sincerely desirous of serving and obeying him, is beset by the lowest passions of human nature, and from tears and prayers of earnest penitence, can, by apparently the most trivial incitements, pass to the most humiliating compliances to sin. Apparently, for until the effects are experienced, it would be incredible that the commonest affections and unintentional actions should produce a confusion and disturbance in the mind that is exalted to the love of God and destroy every impression but momentary gratification. This can only be the work of the enemy of our souls, our souls that have so often prayed to him for grace and mercy, and while lamenting our errors and trying to gain mutual strength, have solemnly declared that we would embrace our cross, follow our leader, and valiantly oppose the enemy of our salvation. Most dear Antonio, a thousand times endeared to me by the struggles of your soul, our Lord is with us. Once more, the mark is the sign of the cross. The text indicates a struggle in which both Elizabeth and Antonio were involved, lamenting our errors, mutual strength. We would embrace our cross. Our Lord is with us. The occasion of the trial is one Elizabeth judges trivial, yet it arouses the lowest passions of human nature. On even a conservative reading, one can conclude that something as insignificant as a passing touch, a glance, or even a conversation ignited sexual desire between these two who found one another attractive, who were already united in a close friendship, and who were thrown together in the isolation of a long voyage. Further passages, Melville shows, indicate that Elizabeth considered herself to have sinned, but remained trustful of the divine mercy. One cannot say more than this about the events of the voyage from the present state of the evidence. After their arrival, Antonio remained in New York until late August before traveling on to Boston. 
In her first letter during this new absence, Elizabeth remarks that he had not encouraged her to write often. This reference is the first written evidence that he feels a need for distance. As for herself, she admits that each evening she watches for a letter from him. She claims this is proper to her female heart, a heart deeply attached to him, fearful not to possess his affection. The Reverend John Henry Hobart, the Protestant Episcopal clergyman who attended to Elizabeth's spiritual needs before the voyage to Italy, visited her while this letter was being written and was clearly out of patience with her. The distress of her minister could only have emphasized the desolation she felt. She had so recently, 8 July, lost Rebecca Seaton, on whom she had been counting for strength in her still sharp grief for William, and Antonio was gone. Here the theme of abandonment surfaces, a theme originally etched into Elizabeth's personality by her own mother's premature death and driven deep by her father's frequent lengthy absences. When, four days after the unpleasantness with Hobart, Antonio's letter arrives, no wonder Elizabeth cries out, I can find but one fault in your letter, which is that a whole side is blank. She closes with a pledge of her true unceasing affection. That affection carries weight in her struggles around conversion. It is clear that she would like to please the one who increasingly is, if not her only earthly tie, certainly the adult who is closest to the concerns of her heart at this time. In mid-September, she writes, I make every endeavor to think as you wish me to, and it is only the obstinate resistance of my mind that prevents my immediately doing also as you wish me to. All the more honor to her integrity that she can neither think nor act except in agreement with her conscience. A few days later, Elizabeth tells him she has received his letter of 15 September. Without Antonio's letter, which I have not seen, it is difficult to know how to interpret her comment, I read it over and over and smile to think that the heart of man knows itself so little, but God knows it and it is enough. There is a sweetness when she continues, saying her intervening letter of 12 September will reassure you of the constancy of that affection on which you justly rely, the affection of my dearest Tony Erlino, which, notwithstanding all my doubts and fears, I must yet hope will be perfected in paradise. She claims that she both fears and hopes to hear from his brother Philip and from your lovely Amabilia. Perhaps a reminder? His response includes a postscript passing on his wife's greetings. Elizabeth ends her letter of 15 September by teasing him about his improved English, wondering if he has found some kind directress to supply the deficiency of her you left behind you. Indeed he had, as he admits in his response to her, a letter in which he also mentions he has been to confession in Boston. The open-hearted affection and playful teasing, both so characteristic of this woman in correspondence with those dear to her, certainly had the potential in a man-woman relationship to move in any of several directions, especially when one considers her widowed state the experience the two had had on shipboard, and the immense distance separating him from his wife. 
how Elizabeth reconstellates her identity as a widow will determine how she continues to relate to Antonio. Religious conversion will be key. Interior shift. The next year witnesses a profound development on Elizabeth's side of the relationship, the evidence for which is in the letters falling between the end of September 1804 and August 1805. A new note is injected already by the end of September. She remarks that when she yearned to cry out Antonio, she calls back the thought and instead calls out Jesus. Any woman of faith might make that substitution when she finds her heart straying where she does not choose to go. It is clear by mid-October that her thoughts had been dwelling on Amabilia. After asking to be remembered to his best beloved in Leghorn, she writes a touching paragraph of reminiscence about her visit there, noting that the happiest hour I can now anticipate in this world is that in which I shall hear that you are again in that dear place in the arms of the still dearer objects it contains. The expression of such sentiments evokes a heart undergoing discipline, reminding itself of dear, though hard, realities. The larger context remains the ongoing struggles with her faith commitment, complicated by extreme financial need. Illness, both her servant woman's and her own, made Elizabeth's situation even worse in late November and early December. She mentions making fires, preparing wood, and nursing her sick servant, all in addition to her usual work. A close contemporary parallel might be a January weekend in northern Ontario, in an unwinterized cabin with no running water and outdoor plumbing. The circumstances would be similar, except that for Elizabeth, the condition was permanent and included five young children. Meanwhile, Antonio had not received any letters and wrote to complain, threatening sour looks and words. Despite all her difficulties, Elizabeth had indeed written to Antonio and sealed the letter. A significant series of reflections led her not to send it. She relates her concerns in the response which his complaint generated, a letter fascinating for the new dimension it introduces in one revelatory passage. Considering with my own heart its errors, its wanderings, and still added sorrows, which all call to it with an irresistible force to give itself to God alone, I ask why then deliver it, or even lend it to the uncertain influences of human affections? Why allow it to look for Antonio to be made happy by his attentions or disturbed by his neglects? When those moments spent in writing to or thinking of my brother are given to my J, he never disappoints me but repays every instant with hours of sweet peace and unfailing contentment. And the tenderest interest you can ever bestow on me is only a stream of which he is the fountain. Here Elizabeth moves beyond the earlier substitution of Jesus for Antonio in the cry of her heart. She affirms that her heart, with all its ups and downs, still recognizes a call in the sorrows she is enduring, a call to give itself to God alone. She has not spoken previously in this correspondence of such a sense of call. 
it leads her to reflect on why she should seek happiness in Antonio's attentions when, as she puts it, Antonio is but the stream of which Jesus is the fountain. She is beginning to work out the implications of that call, which involves the gift of the heart to God alone, and immediately sees what they are for her relationship to Antonio. However, with a rapid shift of direction quite typical of her, she then turns on him, attacking him both for his failure to write and for his extended stay in Boston. That she continues to struggle with her affection for him is apparent. In her next letter, she speaks of making the dear sign, that is, the sign of the cross, to help her try to be indifferent when a letter from Antonio was brought to her. She explains that she wishes never to think of you with tenderness, but when she prays for him, whom she calls her dearest friend, she overflows with sighs and tears of affection. To this point, there exists a relationship begun when, in the circumstances surrounding her new widowhood, Elizabeth was quite vulnerable. Its development was interwoven with her discovery of and subsequent interest in Catholicism. His companionship during her return journey to the United States through the immediate loss of Rebecca Seaton was undoubtedly welcome. The letters following the first withdrawal of his presence suggest the deeply affectionate quality of their bond. Elizabeth finds herself drawn to restrain her affection, either by something in the quality of that affection, or by the nature of the religious call she is experiencing, or, as seems most likely, by some combination of the two factors. She is well into reconstellating her identity through religious conversion. As to Antonio, he seems to have been something of a flirt. Near the end of January 1805, Elizabeth lets fall a telling passage. Antonio's weeks in Boston have lengthened into months. She writes, God be merciful, I may as well tell you as I have so long thought it. I could not help imagining that some extravagance such as that which once bound you to our sister influenced your stay in Boston. Do not say it was ungenerous as the source of these imaginations you must most easily discern, but your word is sufficient. The exact nature of the extravagance is unclear, but obviously it is a matter of the bonds of affection. She also complains that his language has become that of a stranger to a stranger. In her view, he could not speak as he has to one he really loves. Her love for him remains strong, if she means it when she writes that his word will be enough to remove her doubt. Whether her judgment and her love are of equal quality in this case is a separate issue. Other explanations of Antonio's long stay in Boston are possible, and earlier Elizabeth has mentioned several of them. Multiplicity of business, laziness of temper, diffidence of disposition, inconvenience in writing English with other etc.s. A full analysis depends upon the availability of both sides of all of the correspondence from this period. However, in April 1805, when Antonio has moved on to Philadelphia, she raises again the question of his woman friends. And how are you, my brother? 
Do you meet any elegant friends in Philadelphia? Any pupils for the Italian language? Any sirens? God preserve you. I pray that your good angel may have no cause to turn from you, and that you may be faithful to all his admonitions. It is difficult not to read this April letter as speaking with the voice of experience. A similar plea will recur the following October when Antonio has traveled back to Boston. After inquiring for news of Amabilia, she will write, Also say something to me of your dear friends in Boston, whether your calendar of saints is increased, if you have any new scholars, and if the old ones improve, and above all things, dear Tonino, if you try earnestly to be good, which is my greatest interest. Under the teasing, there is an honest concern. Her remark adds support to the suggestion that her Antonio was a flirt. In May 1805, more than a year has gone by since William Seaton's death and almost a year since Rebecca's. In March 1805, Elizabeth had professed the Catholic faith and received her first communion. Time is healing the wounds of the two deaths. The preoccupation of coping with her changed circumstances fills her days, and Antonio is constantly away from New York. A new quality marks her letters to him, not yet quite the quality of serenity, but rather containedness. She has assumed her new identity. While she continues to write candidly and affectionately, incorporating her unfolding faith journey into her ongoing relationship with the man who had first taught her to sign herself with the cross, the exuberance of feeling toward him who she had called her dearest Tony Erlino is tempered. Evidence to suggest that Antonio initiated the change is in a letter she writes from New York. Dear, dear Antonio, why must I speak to you in a manner so little conformed to the feelings of my heart? But you know yourself drew the line, and the kindness and sweetness of affection must be veiled from the searcher of hearts it cannot, and it delights me to consider that he also sees its sincerity, simplicity, and holiness. Note the passages, so little conformed to the feelings of my heart. You yourself drew the line. Affection must be veiled. Her conclusion shows that she is confident that her affection for him is irreproachable. The passage quoted interrupts her formal explanation of a plan for the education of her sons. Antonio approves of sending them to Georgetown and outlines arrangements to transfer funds to her to pay for their needs. He explains, I cannot, I will not be now, but your lazy brother cashier. He asks her to keep him informed of her needs, pointing out that he believes he owes her more than she owes him. He sees himself incapable of and unwilling to continue any other relationship with her than benefactor. There is a new diffidence in him accompanying the recasting of their relationship. Consolidation the recasting is not a dissolution, but it does involve a real difference and seems to take some getting used to. Near the end of August 1805, Antonio was off to Montreal, having asked her not to write and apparently committed himself not to do so either. Then, in the manner of people everywhere, he changed his mind, wrote, and asked to hear from her. 
Elizabeth gladly sent all her news, but the new tone is there. A slight distance and an overt concern for his eternal welfare, couched more insistently than earlier in their correspondence. She ended, though, like the old Elizabeth. Dear, dear Antonio, take care of yourself. Think often of the many, many who love and value you besides the strong, endearing ties of nature which call so loudly to you. The new quality on her side is rooted in the blossoming of the call she first spoke of ten months before, in December 1804. Now in the fall of 1805, Antonio is again away. She and her children are in Greenwich, her school has failed, and her health is bad. In addition, she misses the church and the comforts of her religion. In this mood, she writes to Antonio, With all the accumulated difficulties that surround me for the present and in prospect, he who lives in my heart never suffers me to forget that the seed I am now sowing in tears shall certainly be reaped in joy. And this certainty is so ever-present with me and bears me up so lightly over the briars and thorns, I often stop in the midst of hurry and beg my dear Savior to assure me that it is not temptation and that he will not let my enemy persuade me there is peace when there is no peace. He always answers, Do not fear. While your peace is in me alone, it cannot be false." When I was dear Seton's wife, and he lamented that I did too much, I delighted in telling him, Love makes labor easy, and how much more I delight in repeating it to him who is father, husband, brother, friend. What is new in her is caught here quite well, the presence of peace in trial, the concern lest that peace be temptation, the nature of the reassurance, and finally the shift in language referring to her Savior, naming him as father, husband, brother, and friend. No wonder Antonio, flirtatious though he may be, has become somewhat diffident with her. Antonio's injunction not to write was again repeated, for she mentions it in a letter on the anniversary of her first communion. She says she cannot drink of the fountain of life without thinking of the hand that led her to it. He must have asked her only to write about matters of necessity. When he sailed for home, she wrote, When I recollect the last kind look of my dear Tonino and his unwearied constant affectionate regard to his poor sister, I hope he will not be displeased at being so soon troubled with a letter from her, though it does not contain any communication of absolute necessity. My heart has followed yours in the passage of the Atlantic and many, many prayers of sincere affection it is poured forth for your safety. After writing on the anniversary of her profession of faith, 14 March 1807, and then sending Easter greetings, she wrote on 10 April to let him know she has received his letter announcing his safe arrival home. In the conclusion of her letter, she strikes three themes which she has developed throughout this correspondence and which will continue present through the rest of her life. The gift of her heart to God, her deep affection for her Antonio, and her hunger for an eternal reunion with Antonio. She writes, 
As obedience is his favorite service and cannot lead me wrong, according to the old rule I neither look behind nor before, but straight upwards, without thinking of human calculations, this to you, Antonio, who understands the sincerity of your poor little sister's heart and that it all, all belongs to God. Will you remember and write to your own sister as often as you can? Oh, Antonio, Antonio, does the wide ocean divide me from you? But nature trembles, and my eyes are clouded at the thought, dwelling on it a moment, makes them overflow. But the struggle concludes by a fervent prayer for our eternal reunion. Elizabeth's love for Antonio, transformed and incorporated into her own new self-understanding, will remain tender throughout her life. Antonio, in turn, will be constant in his chosen role of benefactor. The birth and maturation of that love is one fruit of her time of mourning, time of conversion. 2. O oh, my Anna, the child of my soul! From widowed mother to mother Seton, 1807-1812 As the experience of widowhood paralleled her conversion, giving it distinctive shape, so, too, the experience of mothering a teenage daughter paralleled Elizabeth's initiation as a religious foundress. Though simultaneous mothering of children and a community must have affected Elizabeth's mothering in both directions, here, for reasons of space, I will limit consideration to one instance of her mothering, that of her daughter Anna, without touching the concurrent community history. The spring of 1807 witnessed not only Antonio's safe arrival in Leghorn, but also the twelfth birthday of Anna Seton, the eldest child of Elizabeth and William. Anna Maria, also called Anne and sometimes Anina, was born in New York 3 May 1795. When she died in 1812, two months before her 17th birthday, Elizabeth was plunged into an extraordinarily severe and prolonged grief. Her relationship with this beloved daughter is a central one in the years in which Elizabeth moves from being the widow Seton, mother of her brood of five darlings, to being mother Seton, mother of many daughters. The evolution of her relationship with Anna sheds light on the woman Elizabeth became during these pivotal years. Access to the relationship is indirect, through letters to others and through the journals. The following material is organized in four steps. 1. Elizabeth's general orientation within her motherhood. 2. Elizabeth's evolving freedom in her relationship to Anna. Three. Anna, the teenager, and her mother, for Elizabeth's reaction to Anna's death. General Orientation From the birth of her eldest, Elizabeth explicitly related her love for her children to her love of God. Her approach was radical. She offered them to death in preference to their eternal loss and offered to surrender them rather than herself lose God. To an unusual degree, her love for all her babies was held in tension with her love for God. Perhaps because of her own experience of childhood abandonment, an experience that had been eased in prayer, she found it difficult to accept that one could enjoy simultaneously a loving parental relationship and the love of God. 
Shocking though it may seem to some, Elizabeth writes that from Anna's infancy, she prayed for her child's death, fearing so much she would live and be lost. She was equally capable of praying that God would take all her dear ones if Elizabeth herself could not possess them and God too. At her core, this woman showed a steel that compares favorably with heroic women like the biblical mother who encouraged seven sons to martyrdom, 2 Maccabees 7, or the early Christian martyr Perpetua. Although she was a nursing mother, Perpetua turned a deaf ear to the plea that she abandoned Christianity because of her baby's need. The weight of the choice is not against the child, but for God. Trust in God is central to such love. Each woman, Elizabeth Seton, the unnamed biblical mother, and Perpetua, trusts her God to the God who alone has claim to absolute love. Elizabeth's evolving freedom in her relation to Anna. Such trust has freedom as its correlative. The freedom in question is Elizabeth's ability to consider first the child's good in life-shaping decisions. Such freedom in relation to Anna evolved over time. Once the family was reunited in New York after William's death, and the struggle around Elizabeth's proposed conversion began, for some time the mother's references were largely to my little ones in a group. However, on three separate occasions, the possibility of Julia Scott adopting Anna was considered. Julia, for whom Anina was a favorite among Elizabeth's children, seems to have proposed this for the first time in 1804, believing it would be a help to both mother and child. Elizabeth refused the well-meant offer without qualification. She wanted all her children with her and felt they would be better off without the advantages wealth could give. She writes, Yours and Maria's visits to me last summer appear like a vision. Little Kit often speaks of Aunt Scott, and Anna sighs so pitifully at the mention of your name that my heart involuntarily answers her. And though fully convinced in every point of view of the value of your affectionate kindness to her, nature will sometimes prove her power, and I shrink from the promise which reason and gratitude has sealed. She is a singular child and requires so many amendments in her disposition and habits that I fear she will call the whole force of your affection for me into exercise. But do not think of it. God will bless your kind intentions to a fatherless child. And however rough or unhinged my mind may be, my soul must be attached to you tenfold forever. There is at least a hint she sighs pitifully at the mention of your name, that Anna may have welcomed the change. However, the mother explicitly wants her child with her. Nature proves her power, and I shrink from the promise. Do not think of it. It is not wholly clear what the promise entailed. It may have been adoption or perhaps only a prolonged visit. On her side, Elizabeth also mentions the attention Anna's behavior needs. Evidently not the events of the Italian journey have tamed her spirited daughter, at least not in the mother's view. The first discussion fell immediately after the return from Italy to New York, and so, with respect to Elizabeth's conversion, during the time of devastation and desolation. 
Julia repeated her offer in 1807. The mother responded, You talk of taking her from me, dearest friend. If it was difficult two years ago, imagine now. Softly, softly, my heart. Hereafter we may wish what we now pronounce impossible. My fate, Julia, is as uncertain as the world we are thrown upon. Patience, look to the clouds. This time Elizabeth responded with some qualification. She recognized that at some point such a move might be needful, granting her own difficult situation. It is in 1807 that she is consolidating her identity as a Catholic. She is faced with serious problems in supporting her children, and the first hints of consciousness of her own religious vocation are beginning to emerge. She sees that at some point her own situation might preclude having her daughter with her. Elizabeth herself suggests the possibility of adoption when it arises in 1809 for a third time. She asks Julia to take Anna if the girl is unhappy at Emmitsburg. There is a clear evolution within Elizabeth herself, from needing the presence of all of her children to recognizing that her own situation could necessitate a change, to seeing that a change might be in the child's best interest. It is this shift that represents Elizabeth's emerging freedom in her relation with Anna. Anna, the teenager, and her mother. As Anna becomes physically mature in 1807 and 1808, she is also more prominent in her mother's letters. The first sign of her budding maturity is a mention in January 1807 that Anna, then almost 12, is almost as much a woman as her mother and much more discreet and considerate. There seems to be a certain wholeness about the girl. She is sympathetic without being merry. Eight months later, Elizabeth complains, The greatest difficulty I have to encounter is the loveliness of my Anna. She is, indeed, a being formed to please. Patience must take it coolly. By early October 1807, when Anna is about twelve and a half, Elizabeth is writing to Sad that the girl who has been ill is growing rapidly in spirit. She comments somewhat proudly, If my spirit could advance as fast as dear Anna's, you would be astonished on your return. The oak and vine, how different! Anna had just turned 13 when the family moved to Baltimore in June 1808. By then she seems to have completed physical maturation. Her mother writes to Julia in that fall, Your Anna is my great assistance and a finer creature, both in mind and body, you could scarcely wish for. Since she is in Baltimore, the woman is so marked in her appearance and manner that indeed you would scarcely know her. Her chest is very prominent, and the shoulders quite in their right place. Here she appears to advantage. As the girls associated with her dress in some style, and she of course imperceptibly adopts their manner. Every mother of a teenage daughter will recognize the combination of pride with a suggestion of anxiety in these extracts. By the following spring, the 14 year old Anna had fallen in love with Charles du Pavillon, a student at St. Mary's. Evidently her brothers, Richard and William Seaton, fellow students of Charles's, had carried verses and flowers to their sister from her admirer. 
to accept these tokens without permission was a serious imprudence in the eye of the broader society. Anna herself, having been quite sheltered, was probably innocent of the significance of her action. Julia wrote in defense of Anna, I believe we expect too much from human nature if we hope unlimited confidence from our children, and Anna was too young and had been too little in society to be aware of the impropriety of receiving and answering a letter from a young man. The situation influenced Elizabeth's decision to take her oldest daughter with her to Emmitsburg in June 1809, although only with the arrangement, noted above, that the girl could go to Julia Scott if she were unhappy in the country. Anna evidently continued to be in touch with Charles. When mother and daughter returned to Baltimore a year later in June 1810, at the time of Cecilia Seaton's death, Elizabeth saw the need for Anna to spend time with Charles before the latter returned permanently to his own country. She left Anna in Baltimore with friends while she herself returned to Emmitsburg. Once Charles was gone, Anna received mail from him. There is compassion in her mother's mentions of Anna's heartache and the affirmation that he might indeed return. Elizabeth manifests both sympathy for her 16-year-old daughter and respect for the girl's decision when they learn of Charles's marriage in the spring of 1811. The mother mentioned that Anna was perfectly settled in renouncing the world, though not inclined to a religious life. The point seems to be that the girl was willing to live in the country with her mother, but did not wish to enter her mother's community. Thus, it is all the more surprising that, when Anna's health declined rapidly the following fall, she moved toward what would be a deathbed profession of religious vows in the winter of 1812, when she was not quite 17. Close association with her mother and the sisters must have played a role in her choice. Our interest here, though, is rather in the mother than the daughter— careful study of the evidence for this relationship of Anna's reveals the degree to which Elizabeth respected her daughter's personal inclinations. Familiarity with the Seton story can lead one to think that Elizabeth had, from the start, encouraged her daughter toward entering the community. The evidence suggests rather deep affection, concern, and a remarkably supportive attitude toward her girl's romance. On the whole, Elizabeth provides good modeling for mothering a teenaged girl. Elizabeth's Reaction to Anna's Death It was in early May 1811 that Elizabeth described Anna as settled in renouncing the world, though not inclined to religious life. At the beginning of December in that same year, 1811, Elizabeth wrote to Julia, Anna, my sweet, precious comfort and friend, is undergoing all the symptoms which were so fatal to our Cecilia and so many of the family. Anna Seton died 12 March 1812. After Anna's death, Elizabeth entered into profound desolation. One approach to interpretation of the phenomenon may be through some remarks in her notebook. She writes, Eternity always at hand. O Anina, I look to the far, so far distant shore, the heaven of heavens. A few days more, and eternity. Now then, all resignation, love abandon. 
rest in him, the heart in sweet bitterness, amour, an atteasement, abandon. For Elizabeth, every earthly love sooner or later was severed, for her love led to annihilation. Repeatedly, she lost the objects of her love, either to death or to distance. So had gone mother and father, husband and sisters. So went Antonio. So now went her dearly loved oldest child. But the losses, while they were experienced as reduction to nothingness, were nevertheless not final. In Elizabeth's life, loss and the consequent devastating human emptiness led to abandonment into the hands of God. So a more anaitisement abandon. Trust in God was central to Elizabeth's love for her children. That is, she trusted them to the God who alone holds claim to absolute love. Yet such trust needed time to mature. The three instances when Anna's adoption was considered give evidence that, over time, Elizabeth herself became more free. Eventually, in life-shaping choices, she could consider her daughter's good before her own. Such development is a correlative of growing trust in God. At the same time that Elizabeth was moving into her role as foundress, she supported her teenage daughter in the pangs of young love and respected Anna's original choice against religious life. The girl's death devastated her mother. Though enduring it, Elizabeth came to a mature trust founded in abandonment to God. 3. Afterward, several points raised by this material are of continuing interest. First, it is clear that throughout the period 1809 to 1812, Elizabeth had two parallel preoccupations, her own vocation and the foundation of the community and her children, especially Anna's maturation. Questions to be studied concern how these dimensions of her life interact. For example, what is the shape of Elizabeth's inner experience in her great desolation after the loss of her firstborn? How does a mother's grief function in this loss, which is concurrent with the adoption of the first constitutions of her religious community? A second point of interest is the importance of the experience of widowhood, not only for Elizabeth, but also for two other women in the young community who will also become religious mothers, Rose White and Margaret George. How did their experience of the widowed woman's plight shape them as religious superiors? It is clear that Elizabeth's roles as widow and mother shaped the woman who became a foundress. Equally, it may be expected that the work of foundress as well as of religious superior was dependent upon the experience of the women who embarked on these tasks. Thirdly, Elizabeth's experience, as Sister Marilyn Thee has demonstrated, will be grasped in its richness only as we come to understand the lives of women of her day a span which corresponds roughly with the federal period in United States history. All three areas thus offer directions for further study. All three raise issues of ongoing concern to women. Research would be aided by the publication in full of the Seton Papers. 
Ultimately, all women will benefit from exploration of the life and spirit of this daughter, sister, wife, mother, widow, and foundress of the Sisters of Charity in North America, Elizabeth Ann Bailey Seaton. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Incension Heritage Podcast. If you have any questions, please send them to mission.depaul at gmail.com. Be sure to check out all the other Vincentian family resources on our website, mission.depaul.edu.